Can you imagine a, a, a petite woman who weighed 90 pounds traveling throughout the South documenting rape victims at that time? It's really extraordinary and took so much strength. But she also said she did that so she could survive her own experiences. Hey, hi, everybody. My name is Doug Barr, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the St. Helena Forum for Innovation and Creativity. As most of you know, the Forum is an educational nonprofit with a mission to entertain, inform, inspire by presenting conversations and panel discussions and lectures and interviews regarding a wide variety of humanities-based subjects. Today, December 1st, marks 68 years since the civil rights, women's rights, and human rights activist Mrs. Rosa Parks was arrested in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 for refusing to give up her bus seat so a white man could sit in her place. And for many of us, that incident is the beginning and end of what we know about this extraordinary woman. So to help us fill in the chapters of Rosa Parks' history, we've invited her dear friend and confidant, H.H. Leonards, to share stories and anecdotes from Mrs. Parks' life of faith, courage, and resilience during her long struggle for equality in America. In addition to being a wife, a mother of three, and author of seven books, H. Leonard's, as she is known to her friends, is the founder of PIR Marketing in Washington, D.C., the nonprofit O Museum and Mansion, which is a historic 20th century civil rights site on the African American Heritage Trail, and she's the co founder of 51 Steps to Freedom. Ms. Leonard's is a recipient of Purdue University's Distinguished Service Award, which honors leadership through the development of significant contributions to private or public programs that improve quality of life for individuals and families and communities. Leonard's writing has appeared in Newsweek and Ms. Magazine, and she has been a, a featured speaker at the Rosa Parks Museum, the National Museum of African American Music, and the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. We have asked our friend, Noah Griffin, to join H in a conversation about her friend and mentor, Mrs. Rosa Parks. Noah studied history at Yale and Fisk Universities before earning a law degree from Harvard. He was a recipient of a Coro Foundation Public Affairs Fellowship and a Phelps Stokes History Fellowship. And then after college, Noah spent 35 years in government, politics, media, and journalism. And in those capacities, he served on statewide staff in two presidential campaigns as an administrative aide to Dianne Feinstein and press secretary to San Francisco Mayor Frank Jordan. He served as director of public affairs at the Charles Schwab Company and was a public information officer at San Francisco City College. In journalism, Griffin wrote for the Marin Independent Journal, the Hearst Examiner, and was nationally syndicated with Scripps Howard. He's appeared on PBS's NewsHour with Jim Lear, and he's been featured in the Boston Globe, the NAACP Crisis Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Jose Mercury News and Jet Magazine, and he's also appeared on CNN, CBS Sunday Morning, and Talk of the Nation. His musical resume is both impressive and way too long for this introduction, which is already too long. So let me paraphrase it by saying he began singing at age seven with the San Francisco Boys Chorus and over the years since has shared a stage with Paul Robeson, Leontine Price, Nat King Cole, Johnny Ray, and Duke Ellington. And among his other accomplishments, Noah is one of the founding members of the Cole Porter Society. 
And now, if you're all ready, it's time to listen in on what I think is going to be a brilliant conversation between H.H. Leonards and Noah Griffin. I'm Noah Griffin, and it's my honor and privilege to be interviewing and having conversation with today H.H. Leonard, who is the author of Rosa Parks' Beyond the Bus, Life, Lessons, and Leadership. Before we get into the life of Rosa Parks, we'd like to get into yours a little, if we could, H. Um, how did you come to know Rosa Parks, and what in your family's background brought you to the point where you would think that this is relevant? I grew up in Indiana, um, and in 1994, I got a phone call from someone I did not know from Detroit telling me that Mrs. Rosa Parks had been severely accosted in her home. I did not know who Mrs. Parks was because there was no education in my school system about Mrs. Parks, civil rights, anything else. But I could tell from the need of the gentle person I was talking to, and his name was Willis Edwards. He was the president of the NAACP in Beverly Hills and a close friend of Mrs. Parks that she was in need of help. And he said that she had been severely accosted. She had no money. When she got out of the hospital, could she please stay with us at no cost? Um, and because she refused, adamantly refused to ever go back to her home in Detroit again. And I said, yes. And he, I think, was surprised. He must have called a lot of other people who said no because he kept on talking about why it was so important that she have a safe haven to come to. Um, and then he realized and said yes, and he said, when, if I can get her and her staff that will be taking care of her around the clock to Washington at no cost, I'll call you and I'll tell you when she's getting out of the hospital. And that's exactly what happened. He found a Southwest Airlines floor from Detroit to Washington. She arrived. I did not Google search her. I did not look her up. She was just someone that was checking in that needed help. And that's how it all started. It was, go ahead. You might want to tell people a little about the O Mansion and what that's all about. Today, it is 112 rooms with 87 secret doors. It started out as one row house with a side companion garden. From the very beginning, we I believed that um, my mission was to serve other people and give them access to hope. So everything in the museum is about creativity, giving back to your community, giving back to people in need. Everything is donated. I made a conscious choice from the very beginning that money could corrupt. So I never built the organization around that. It was about serving others. And sometime, some, for some reason, because of that, I think it's why we have survived the ups and downs of life that um, just happened. From and the this pit. is in the DuPont Circle area of Washington, D.C., correct? In the center and the heart of our nation's capital, yes. And it has a storied history in and of itself. Yes. It was um, designed by the last architect of the U.S. Capitol, for his brother and his um, two brothers, actually, and, and one sister. The sister never moved in, but one brother was a Speaker of the House when Teddy Roosevelt was president. He was the last architect of the capital at the turn of the century, which tells you nepotism has always existed and it will always <laughs> exist in the future. 
Um, but it's a magnificent structure. And in 1985, I built a companion house where the sister was supposed to live in. It is um, 38,000 square feet of enchantment, excitement, and, and uh, love because the house is built about around that basis. Let's get into the life of Rosa Parks and what people might not know about her. She was born in Alabama, and she was someone who picked cotton barefoot in a time where girls could go to school to the fifth grade and boys only to the third grade. Tell us a little something about her family background. Her father left when she was two years old and her brother was one year old, um, which was a painful experience for both children. Her mother said um, that she was not prepared to have children. So basically she turned them over to her mother and father to, to bring these two children up. She um, said it was a blessing. She understood why her mother did what she did. She honored her. And when she could, she took care of her from the time she married till her mother's death because she loved her mother so much. Um, and she wrote about it a lot in one of her four books because she wanted the children of the world to understand that no matter what your background was, no matter what happened to you, that you could rise above that if you had a mission and a vision and believed in um, God's path of giving back. She was never bitter about any of her experiences. She never talked badly about anyone, but she said she was so happy to have been raised by her grandmother and grandfather because they gave her so much strength and hope and, and um, acceptance. She became a seamstress because she didn't want to do the kind of domestic work that was required of black women or limited to black women at that time, and also became interested in documenting the case of black women and the sexual assaults, particularly that they were subjected to. Speak a little about that, if you would, please. What was remarkable about Mrs. Parks is in the 1930s, she started documenting rape victims in Alabama. Can you imagine a, a, a petite woman who weighed 90 pounds traveling throughout the South documenting rape victims at that time? It's really extraordinary and took so much strength. But she also said she did that so she could survive her own experiences. She wanted to give other people a voice um, and to know that there was someone that was giving them a voice by her recording what had happened. So she took things that were bad that happened to her and made them positive always. And the other thing is that um, she understood that the power of hope speaks to the best of us. And it's a belief that love is all that matters and that love conquers fear. So whenever she went into dangerous situations, her demeanor was so giving and so gentle that it was um, one step forward always. And yet she came from a family situation where th th there was no belief in turning the other cheek insofar as the Klan uh, picked out the particular family for ostracism and also for dangerous situations. And her father, you bright in the book, many times would stay up all night with a shotgun across his knee in case someone decided to 
molest his family or to ter terrorize them or to put them in, in harm's way. What's interesting is the dichotomy of how people perceive Mrs. Parks and what she did also to survive and what she believed in. So because her grandfather protected them with that gun every night at his own peril, she um, believed that everyone had the right to fight back, that they should not be passive. She and Dr. King had long conversations about um, his civil rights beliefs of non-confrontational. She said that the civil rights movement would never happen without Dr. King having believed in that and speaking of that mission, but she didn't necessarily agree with him because she felt you should, there were times when you should take a stand and you should speak up. But in the same time, even though she joined the Black Panther movement, she never got angry. She never argued. She would just smile she would reach out to people that were arguing with her or tried to argue with them and shake their hands for them to understand she was human. She was just one person that she was, her message was about love and they would calm down and they would listen to her. Because if you um, are too confrontational, people don't listen. And that was the magic of Mrs. Park. She understood a greater calling because of that. And it was extraordinary to watch. Um, it was extraordinary also to listen and feel her ability to forgive everyone everything. And one of the biggest lessons she taught me was not just to forgive other people for their behavior, but every night, forgive yourself. She practiced what she preached, even in the light of the tremendous sexism within the civil rights movement, which I was shocked, surprised, and disheartened to learn about. Let's talk about how she became the mother of the civil rights movement. What happened that day, December 1st, 1955? So one of the most frustrating things to Mrs. Parks was to have everyone that she would speak to um, say that it was a planned event. It was never planned. The NAACP had talked about doing this, but it was never their intention for her to be the one. And she had had a, um, an altercation with the bus driver. She was not looking up when she went to get on that bus that fateful day. She was fumbling in her purse for money. And as she walked up the steps, she found the money, she put it in the machine. And then she looked up and was horrified because it was um, James Blake. But in, but in the South, if a woman was alone on a bus, the bus drivers would drive to the end of the line. The woman would be raped. The police would be waiting there. They would get in line. So she was really horrified. Um, and she was shaking. And she went back to her seat. It was not in the white section like the press has reported. It was in the black section. She was shaking and she was just praying to God to give her strength not to move. Everything would be okay. The bus was filled. She wasn't going to be on it for that long. And then she ha started to get images of Emmett Till, who had just, his mother had put pictures of him in the black newspapers. And it was Emmett Till's face in those newspapers, the horrific death that he suffered, that gave her the strength to sit keep on sitting when the bus driver came back and started screaming at her. 
So um, it's interesting. Tell us, uh, for those who didn't know, was the 12-year-old young black boy that was sent down to Mississippi by his mother from Chicago and supposedly wolf whistled at a white woman in a grocery store and as a result was tortured and shot and killed. And his mother had the presence of mind to show the country what they did to her son, which revolutionized the civil rights movement and became very close friends with uh, with, with Mrs. Parks. Uh, and you were saying that that was the image that she kept in her mind when she was on the bus that day, refusing to give up her seat, refusing to, to move um, as she was already sitting in, quote, the black section. And people didn't realize until I read your book, I didn't, that blacks were only allowed on the top of the bus with the luggage uh, before they were allowed in the bus. Could you speak about that? uh, It's really quite extraordinary, the sequence of events and what um, was people had to put up with in the South. I do want to say one thing about Mrs. Parks's nature so that everyone listening can understand that this was truly a special woman. Um, when the bus driver, Mr. Blake, passed, the press called Mrs. Parks and asked her for a comment. And she never responded right away. She would always think um, deeply about her words. She understood their impact. And she waited about three minutes and she responded, I am sure his family misses him. That's just extraordinary. It says it all in such simple words. Um, I wish I could learn that trait. I learned a lot from her. I learned a lot of lessons. But I I don't have those extraordinary powers of words that explain things with such grace. Well, there was someone else who refused to give up her seat on the bus prior to Rosa Parks, but it turned out that that was not the person to be called. And can you explain a little bit why? She was, I think, 14 or 15 at the time. Um, She did have the same experience, and um, she was pregnant at the time. She was unwed, and um, the NAACP knew that it would not be receptive to uh, the nation to have her as the example. And and what was extraordinary about Mrs. Parks was that from the time she was a small girl, she lived leading an exemplary life. So there was nothing in her history that could be used against her. And I saw her so many times talking to people that um, are extraordinary, had done so much, but talking about perhaps they should step back and look at their behavior so that the way they were living at the moment couldn't be used against their mission and their vision. Um, that bus boycott lasted a year, and it put her together with Martin Luther King, a new minister that had come in from Atlanta, not wanting to take over his father's position in the church. I, as a 16-year-old, uh, stayed at his parents' home. Wow. My mother and Mrs. King grew up together. And so my mother was a senior and I was a junior delegate to the NAACP convention, heard him speak at Ebenezer Baptist Church and met him in the quad. I was I was impressed by what a great orator he was. And he wasn't very tall. And I, in television, he looked so much uh, taller. But 
there was an interesting combination of the two insofar as she was, and, and black women in particular, were the heart and soul of the NAACP and the heart and soul of the boycott movement, which lasted a year and changed the law, did it not? So one of the things that people don't know about Mrs. Parks is that she sent many letters to Dr. King asking him to take on the mantle of the Montgomery bus strike, and he kept on refusing. And finally, she met with him and said, Dr. King, you have to understand, I've seen you in church, you're a great orator, but you're new in town. No one has any dirt on you. So you're the only person that can organize um, and, and make it effective because of that. Talk about a lesson in today's politics. Get that new boy in town. I think he was about 26 years old uh, right. when, he, when he took that mantle up. And what a combination of the two of them. But what most people don't realize is the amount of sexism within the civil rights movement, which he had to overcome. For instance, the wonderful speech at the March on Washington, where she was not even allowed to speak, as were other women denied that right. Please talk about that. Um, no woman was allowed to speak at that march, even though they organized it. And they were told by the men that it was going to be televised and they didn't want the women to be raped. So they were protecting them. So the women kept their um, anger to a minimum. And then when President Kennedy saw Dr. King's speech, he called him up and asked him to bring 10 leaders to the White House to talk about civil rights legislation. And he invited 10 men. And that's the point where the women went, whoa, wait a minute here. And that was when Mrs. Parks came up with the idea for now. Um, she is um, the only place I've read that she is um, thanked is Anna Hegeman, who's one of the co-founders and now said it was Mrs. Parks's idea. We wanted to make her president. Mrs. Parks absolutely refused, said this was about all the movement, not just the civil rights movement. We need to be inclusive. If you use me, they'll only think about civil rights. Um, but she went to every organizational meeting. She was involved heavily with it. And then during her involvement with now, she realized that it was as much discrimination within the black community toward women as there were in the women's movement against men and other, so that she pivoted immediately and took on the mantle of human rights. And that was really what she had always believed in, but hadn't understood as clearly. And what is also interesting is people don't know that Mrs. Parks was black, she was white, and she was Native America. And because of that, she was discriminated from all sides. But she said the worst discrimination that she received was from her women. And that um, was upsetting to her, but she understood. And she worked from within to make effect change in human rights. That's interesting. She reminds me so much of Frederick Douglass insofar as he, as far as I can tell, was the first male feminist of the 19th century, the 1800s. Uh, his partner in his newspaper operation was Martin Delaney, who wanted to name his newspaper The Brethren. And he said, no, that excludes women. So we'll name it The North Star. He was at Seneca Falls in 1848. The women asked him to be president of his organization. And he said, why me? It should go to a woman. 
Um, when the 15th Amendment was first proposed, he was initially against it because it did not include women. He ran for the vice presidency under Victoria Woodhull in 1872. And uh, the last day of his life, March 20, February 20th, 1895, he was at a suffragettes meeting. So I don't know many men in the 1800s that had that kind of a resume, but it reminds me of Mrs. Parks not wanting to draw attention and limit that now to maybe what just black women, that it deserved to be representative of all women. And that's kind of the way in which she seemed to approach her life and lead her life. It's not only what do I feel, how would it look like to the outside world and how would it further this cause? So she was very selfless in that regard. It was extraordinary watching that. Um, for the first three years until I um, knew who she was and I found out from somebody else, not from her or her friends that were with her, care, with her taking care of her, um, I was uh, really embarrassed uh, that I didn't know who she was. But our conversations were about family and God. And that's why we bonded so deeply because it was um, not about what she had done. It was about her heart and soul. And then after I found out is when she said, what took you so long? But <laughs> if it hadn't been that way, I wouldn't have been, stayed here so long. I wouldn't have trusted you because you didn't know me. We became best friends. Um, because and you, you both communicated life. so much through your hands. Speak and, of that, please. We would hold hands nearly every day. Um, which was extraordinary for me because she could channel her thoughts through her hands. They were very powerful. They were, if you look at the pictures of her in the book, they are creator hands. They're amazing. And what's also interesting is that she, if you look at her hands and the photographs of her before her time with me, she wore gloves to hide them. After that, she started taking her gloves off and going out in public because she understood that it was shaking people's hands, touching them, having her feel her heart, that she could affect change without speaking. She was that powerful. And I don't know if any of you that are listening have had relationship with someone where you could tell what they were thinking, but it feeling through their hands, it's a, it's a special gift. And I, I make a wish for all of you that you have that experience with someone in your life. The human touch is so powerful and so important. Uh, you write about that within an historical context. Not many historians ever have done that, at least from the books that I've read, and I've pretty widely read in the field of civil rights. That's what makes this book so appealing. Did you start off to write it that way, or that's just who you are and, and a reflection of your relationship with Rosa Parks? I was never a good student. So if I didn't know who she was for three years, you know, I wasn't a good student. Um, so I, I am by no means a historian. And the book was uh, um, really, even though she wasn't alive when I wrote it, it she really channeled through me. Um, it was very easy to write because it came from her. And there was a point halfway through the first draft that the book was lost, and I had called CIA people and Homeland Security people. I'm in Washington. The FBI came in to look at my computer. It was not in the sky. It wasn't on my computer. I had lost it. And I went to bed for a week um, trying to find out what God was trying to teach me, and I woke up and realized that I hadn't written the book Mrs. Parks wanted me to write. And so I sat down, and it just 
flowed. Um, so things happen for a reason and things happen in a sequence for a reason. And we just have to say the words, yes, accept them, smile and say, thank you, Lord. You know, so often um, we look at the lives of great men who don't mention their wives. And when we're looking at the life of a great woman, we don't mention her husband. Speak about the role her husband played in her life. Thank you so much for asking. This was the love of her life. And what was extraordinary is Mrs. Parks was a, a product of the 50s where women stayed at home. Women were not allowed to work. Women did not travel on their own. And she got married at a very young age. And her husband supported her in everything that she did. He allowed her to be Mrs. Rosa Parks. He, uh, Even though he was active in the Scottsboro Brothers and uh, and um, was renowned in the South for his involvement in the NAACP, nothing was ever about him. And what was also extraordinary is wherever she went, when he was alive, and wherever she went after his passing, she always brought his name up. When he died, um, her brother died within weeks of each other, and she was distraught, and she checked her mother and herself into a nursing home because she couldn't function to take care of herself, let alone her beloved mother. Um, and in the year she stayed in the nursing home, she um, what gave her hope and got her out of her deep depression was to start an institute in Detroit. She was told to name it the Rosa Parks Institute for Self-Development. And she said, I love my husband. Without him, I could not have become Mrs. Rosa Parks without his support. So she named it the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development. That tells you who she is. Um, it was extraordinary. And it's a wonderful, beautiful love story, the two of them. You know, let's go back to the incident um, in uh, Detroit. She was so kind and so giving about what she wanted the public to know and what they what she wanted them to take in about herself and not to make people fearful. She was actually raped in that situation. I, uh, she would never say that word, but you're absolutely right. She would say, um, she would use other words um, because it was hard for her to um, talk about herself personally, although she did. Um, but she never grew bitter from it. And she believed that the way to get over um, horrible things that happen to you, assaults, either physical or verbal, is to reach out and understand that there are people out there in worse off situations you are, and your role is to help them. So she would, um, and that's one of the reasons um, she continued to work with rape victims the rest of her life. It's another reason that here's a woman at the age of 81 being assaulted in her home. Um, after that, it was the first time she understood PTSD as acutely as she had. And there was starting to be research where she accepted things as a child, as a child that had happened to her and a young adult that happened to her. And then this incident in her um, elder years. But she would go around the country after that. Any city we went to, she would make sure she spoke to soldiers about PTSD and how she dealt with 
her pain by helping others. It was extraordinary. Your pacemaker was dislodged, was it not, during the assault? She was so badly assaulted that her pacemaker was dislodged, which is incredible. But she was, here's a woman that checks into the hospital in such a state, and she refuses to be admitted until everyone in the hospital signed an NDA that she was never there so that children of the world would not be fearful as she was when she was a child with the Ku Klux Klan. It's just extraordinary. And if you still Google today, if she was admitted to the hospital, no, it's not in the history books. She was there for weeks. And she came, when she came to live with me, she did not leave her room for approximately six months. After that, she started walking and sitting on sofas around the house. She started um, talking with people that no one, I was not allowed to tell anyone who she was you know, her name or that she was staying there. She wanted her privacy, but she talked to people individually. And we have a lot of vets that stay with us and have in our um, Heroes in Residence program. And she would spend special time with them, holding their hand and talking to them. And I, she would never allow me to sit through uh, 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 her conversations with people who were suffering, suffering emotionally, such as the vets that stayed with her. It was really private. Um, which was the way it should be. So she was looking for emotional, mental, and physical healing. And that's what you were able to provide for her. She'd done that throughout her life. Her way of dealing with pain that um, life brings you is to go within herself, not talk to anybody, figure out the lessons of life and figure out who she wants to become. That was so important. So when her brother, like I said, and her, her husband died. She went to a nursing home for a year and then came out like, wow, here I am. Let me help the inner, the kids of the inner city in Detroit. And after um, her assault in um, Detroit, when she was 81, the last 10 years of her life were the most active. She was so focused after spending six months rejuvenating and figuring out why this happened to her, what God wanted her to do, and what her purpose was in life. It gave her new she, meaning. It she always her. said she wanted to come out stronger from each situation, correct? Yes. And boy, she did. I couldn't keep up with her. Her travel schedule was uh, uh, very busy. Um, she also was very disciplined. So people don't know that here's this trailblazer that was a vegetarian starting in the 70s. She was very careful with her diet. She ate five tiny meals a day. She loved sweets, but she never had sweets in front of other people. She would put them in her purse when we were out, and then she'd enjoy them by herself in her room. Um, but she, because of what she suffered physically and emotionally from discrimination and hatred, um, she also, from a child, had a serious stomach issues. So she also ate the way she did as a form of survival. And the fun part is you're taking her around, you took her around in a bus. <laughs> Talk about that. Yes, I um, did not have a car. Um, I had a yellow school bus before Mrs. Parks uh, moved in with me, which is tells you there's a reason for everything. Here I had the yellow school bus. I used to take her to church every Sunday in the school bus. I was her driver. The best thing was driving to the White House in a yellow school bus and going through security and taking Mrs. Parks right up to the front of the uh, White House to let her out. 
people would be quite surprised. But it was also fun because I could take her to the airport when I wasn't traveling with her and leave her off in the front and I could park the bus. No one ever tickets a school bus. Um, we even drove to New York once and we could drive up to New York through the bus lanes of the city. That must have been a wonderful, fun and engaging experience. The people that she influenced in her life, one of the th episodes that sticks out in my, in my mind is the first place that Nelson Mandela wanted to stop when he came to the United States was Detroit. And of course, with the sexism involved and Mrs. Parks being as humble as she was, she was in the back of the crowd and he asked, is Rosa Parks here? Is Rosa Parks here? That's who he wanted to meet. Talk about that special relationship voiced upon what he said that day. So it was really, um, it's really extraordinary. He came to Detroit to meet Mrs. Parks. He said that if she was what allowed him to survive all those years in imprisonment, it was her spirit that gave him hope. He wanted to say thank you. Um, and when he got on the, you know, on the, they didn't have the ramps that you come in, you go down the stairs. So we got to the top of the airplane to come down the stairs to the runway. And he didn't see Mrs. Parks there. There were thousands of people there and all the politicians had pushed her to the back. Um, and her back was against the airport building. And so he did not make one step down the stairs. He just started Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks with his fist in the air. So people started pushing her to the front. And when he saw her is when he came down and um, gave her the hug and, and, and thanked her personally for what she had done to um, allow him to survive what he went through. President so, Obama had a wonderful quote about her as well, if you could relate that. Um, I think it was um, uh, at her funeral, um, President Clinton talked about her and it was an extraordinary speech. And at the end of it, that how she had um, helped change the world but the, how America needed to help spread her word. Um, and it was really, a, a, we have so much work to do. I think President Obama said something that you quoted in the book, long after all the politicians, et cetera, forgotten, she would be remembered. Right. Um, and it was very moving the way he put it. She also had an agenda that she never lost sight of. And one of the moving parts of the book is when you relate as a Catholic meeting with the Pope and how then she had an idea of what she wanted the Pope to do. And her message was so powerful. He just fell right in line. Um, we were flying to meet the Pope in St. Louis. We were sitting together. She was holding my hand and I got the strength up to ask her why of all the people in the world, she had invited me a white woman and she didn't drop my hand. She just didn't say anything for a few minutes. And she turned to me and said, oh dear, I didn't know you were white. And then she continued to hold my hand and about five minutes later she asked, said, I, I really need your help to craft a note to the Pope um, about racism in our society and how I wanna do a press conference with him to talk about it. And I said to her, oh my goodness, I have a pocket full of crosses. I only thought about the Pope blessing the crosses for me to give to my friends. And she looked at me. She didn't make fun of my comment. She just said, God 
has a purpose for all of us. And we need to speak about our mission and vision whenever given the opportunity. So I wrote um, something for her to that was short, that she could um, write in her own handwriting and give to the Pope. And one of the only thing that she changed was she said to me, I had at, as a great leader of the world. And she said, he's not great. And I went, Mrs. Parks, he, he's the Pope. I'm Catholic. How is he not great? And she said, everybody in the world is great. And I said, well, what word would you use? And she said, he's a moral leader. And it was so perfect. So when we got to the hotel, she wrote her note. We got to um, where we were supposed to meet the Pope. And I, none of us knew that all of the bishops and all the archbishops were going to come first to meet her. And the first, it was single line when these big doors opened. And the first bishop that was in line about six feet from her dropped to the floor, crawled on his belly and kissed her foot. And for me, time stopped. It is extraordinary how a jester like that is so much more than all the words in the world. I started, tears were coming down my face. I couldn't stop. Mrs. Parks was so moved. She spoke quietly to him. I did not hear what she said. Everything else after that was anticlimactic because of that. Today, I still get goosebumps seeing that image so strongly. But after all the archbishops came through and spoke to Mrs. Parks, the doors closed and then they opened and the Pope came in with the, the tall hat, the big staff. He was wearing very heavy garbs and he could barely move. And we've been told by handlers, do not go to the Pope, do not walk to him, wait for him to come to you. And Mrs. Parks looked at me and said, Lady H, you need to help me up. She was in a wheelchair. I need to go to the Pope. And I never questioned anything Mrs. Parks asked me. So I helped her up and we walked toward the Pope. And as we were walking, all the crosses in my pocket fell on the marble ground and you could hear this plink, plink. Um, and I just left them there. And we, as we got closer, you could see how moved he was that she was coming to him. And he was so appreciative. He said to her, no one ever does this. I'm in so much pain. Thank you for understanding that. And he was open and receptive to her even more than he would have. And she handed him a book that she had written, Quiet Strength, and inside was the note, which he read. And she asked him to speak the next day on racism, which they did together. And what was so extraordinary after that is that uh, I, told, I was told years later that he kept her book by his bedside and read it and looked at it almost every night and how important it was to him. But also, if you look at his speeches after that, whenever he could, he talked about racism globally. He was so affected by that meeting. So it, no matter who you are, you can affect change when you speak from your heart and you understand that at every occasion that you can, talk with love, talk about hope, and talk about what you can do together to come together to help the world. She was even breaking ground after her death. She was the first woman to lie in state in the rotunda of the, uh, of, of the Capitol. Is that, cor that correct? That's correct. Um, 
the gentleman that introduced me to her and asked for me to be have her come and stay for free at the O Museum of the Mansion also um, did three three funerals for her, one in Montgomery, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Detroit. It was uh, all three of them were totally different, and all three of them were so important to helping people come together. Um, what was extraordinary about the Montgomery, um, I was honored to be a Paul Baker, Paul Beer at all um, of the funerals and to ride with her casket on the plane that Southwest donated. And when we were leaving Montgomery, the pilot from Southwest announced that he was the first black pilot. Um, and he turned the plane to the side and tipped the wing for Mrs. Parks when we left. It was very moving. And he just retired from Southwest a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And they did a nice article about him. You know, not everybody looks at her the way that one would hope that they looked at her. You spoke at a country club. Please tell that story. <laughs> That's, not in the book. That's not in the book. But um, we were driving up to that, and the um, person that was driving me, I just happened to ask her if it was a restricted country club. It was in December of 2022. And she said, yes, no blacks, no Jews. I was with my husband, and I asked him, to pretend he didn't know me and sit at a different table so we could gauge the group. And he came by maybe 20 minutes later and said, um, good luck, you're talking to white supremacists. Um, just be yourself, everything will be okay. And I gave a talk, I answered in the Q&A and it was difficult, but at the end of it, I had been told I was going to be given a honorarium from very wealthy men in this community and they so they passed a hat and I got 52 cents which also spoke a lot but what happened was one woman in the audience came up sobbing uncontrollably not hysterically but where she couldn't stop the tears that were streaming down her face and she thanked me and said I had changed her life um, she now understood what she needed to do and she was going to change her life. And that's what Mrs. Parks had always told me. Meet with people that aren't like-minded like you, that if we're going to affect change, we have to meet those people and show them who we are because they fear you until they know you. Even if you're shaking their hand, they won't fear you after you shake their hand. And um, I, I uh, have been spending time now um, talking to white supremacists and talking to people that don't believe in what Mrs. Parks taught. In June, my husband and I spent um, time in Florida and we're going back from December 1st to de uh, December 5th talking about love is all that matters because they're rewriting the history books, even about a simple woman like Mrs. Parks in the bus incident. Now a white woman. Talk about her letters and legacy at the Library of Congress. Um, I will. I have one other thing about what you just talked about. And mm -hmm. something I didn't understand that Mrs. Parks kept on saying to me over and over again, and it hasn't been until recently that I did. She said, we're not spending time meeting people that don't believe like we are. We're not changing hearts. The laws have changed. We're hiding behind the laws. If we don't change people's hearts, 
the laws will revert back. And that's exactly what is happening now. She was a futurist. It was really extraordinary. Um, but the Library of Congress is a phenomenal place. I think it's my favorite place in, in Washington, D.C. It's a hidden gem, a hidden treasure. But um, when Miss Parks has passed her husband's children sued her estate. She had wanted it to, uh, all of her um, intellectual property to remain at the Rose and Raymond Parks Institute in Detroit. And um, they thought she was wealthy, not knowing that she had no money. Anything that she ever got throughout her life was given to other people less fortunate than she. Um, and they initially won in court, even though her will was very clear and she had done a lot of recordings 10, 15 years before she passed. But they started putting things up on eBay and um, the Institute got a court order to stop that. And they came to an agreement that they would put up the her intellectual property at such a high price, no one would wouldn't be able to sell it or purchase it at that price. And then um, um, Mr. Buffett came in and purchased everything and donated it to the Library of Congress. And he didn't just donate it. He gave money so the Library of Congress could do research and put together their first trailblazing exhibit on one person. In the past, the library had only done genres, um, never one person. It was a magnificent exhibit. And what's also interesting is Mrs. Parks never thought she was important enough to have in the Library of Congress want her things. And here it is for posterity. So if any of you listening have ever written as a child to Mrs. Park, she saved every letter. She documented everything. And you can go to the library and see the very letter you sent her when you were four or seven or 12. It's there, which is really quite glorious. She also documented anything she ever wore. She documented that because she was a historian. She documented things because, again, what you said, Noah, is so true. Men didn't know how to write back then, which is why women became secretaries in the South. Um, so she was used to documenting everything. You know, it's an extraordinary book, and the circumstances under which it was published extraordinary as well. Talk about the publishing house, please. Uh, publishing house is in Nashville. It's R.H. Boyd. It is the oldest black publishing house in the United States. It is now run by a woman, the daughter of the, her great, great, great grandfather. He was an enslaved person. Um, when he was freed, he became a Methodist minister. They taught him how to read and write, and he chose to start a newspaper in the South, um, which is incredible. And they're primarily a Christian um, publishing house. And this was their first book that they ventured out of the church to do, which is why I'm so honored. It was meant to happen. Um, Mrs. Parks is smiling right now. Now, in addition to the book, you have a companion volume called The Gems of Wisdom, Mrs. Rosa Parks Taught Me. How did that come about? So I, I spoke a little bit about Mrs. Parks channeling through me. I wrote 365 gems, but it was really her words through my hands that allowed me to do this book. It is a very small, it's a Bible, is what I call it a Bible. It's got gold 
pages, you know, on the side like a Bible. It's got the red little marker in it. And I chose to do 365 Gems of Wisdom to honor the Montgomery bus strike, which was 365 days of so many people not eating, not having a job, suffering in order to um, affect change in the South. And lastly, what do you hope that this book will accomplish? That more people will pick up the mantle that Mrs. Parks gave them and have the grace to believe in themselves, believe in taking care of other people first before yourself, um, and learn that it doesn't take money to change society. It takes that mission, it takes that vision, it takes that giving other people hope so they can pick the mantle up also. Well, you have certainly done that. As I pointed out to you before, this is the third time I've read the book. I got more out of it the third time than I did the first time. It just is an eye-opener. So whatever you think you've known about the civil rights movement and the involvement of women and great people, I just said great people, not just women, uh, but that's who she really reminds you were the unsung heroes uh, in the movement. Uh, I, I just implore you to, to pick this book up. It will, as it didn't for me, at least, it changed my life. Thank you so much, H.H. Leonards. Thank you, Noah. It's an honor to be in your presence always. You're extraordinary. Thank you. What a wonderfully personal look at the life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Clearly, she is a testament to the power of even one person, including each of us, when we find the courage to speak out against injustice. So thank you, H, and thank you, Noah, for sharing your unique perspectives and insights with us today at the Forum. If you'd like to read more about Mrs. Parks, you might want to check out H.H. Leonard's book, Rosa Parks, Beyond the Bus, Life, Lessons, and Leadership. You can find it on Amazon. During the past months, we have continued our efforts to turn wine country into mind country by hosting discussions of such diverse subjects as the history behind the epidemic of gun violence in America, genomic breakthroughs in finding cures for addiction, advances in nuclear fusion as a viable energy source, epigenetics and how our DNA is affected by our emotions and our environment, and the evolutionary value of laughter in both humans and animals. As we're now approaching the holiday season, this will be the last program of the year, but not to worry, we're already putting together a terrific slate uh, for next year that includes cutting-edge thinking on a range of art, science, technology, and humanities that I can promise you won't want to miss. If you've missed any previous forums or you'd like to revisit or share programs with friends and family, you can find them archived on our website, shforum.org, on YouTube, or now formatted as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Music. And finally, as we share the names of our friends and neighbors whose generosity makes these free forum presentations possible, we're going to play a new song about Mrs. Parks called Enough, written by H's friend, Academy and Grammy Award winner, the great Paul Williams, and performed by a group called Ranky Tanky. Hey, Mrs. Parks gave a spark of resistance. 
And the world 